This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by AstraZeneca's Your Cancer program, which involves interdisciplinary community stakeholders to help redefine cancer care for underserved patients. Learn more at yourcancer.org. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Dr. Carl June, a pioneer in immunotherapy, and Wajahat Ali and Dr. Sarah Qureshi, parents of a childhood cancer survivor, join the Post to talk about the latest developments in oncology and share their inspiring stories. Let's listen. Good morning. I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at the Washington Post and author of the Health 202 newsletter. Welcome to our program, Chasing Cancer, where we speak with some of the most influential names in oncology. Today, I'm delighted to welcome my first guest, Dr. Carl June. He's one of the world's leading immunologists, a pioneer of CAR T-cell therapy, which was first approved by the FDA in 2017. Dr. June, welcome to the program and thanks for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me, Paige. Today, we're gonna talk about uh, cutting edge treatments that of course you pioneered, but first I wanna talk about the coronavirus. And I know that you yourself have had the virus and recovered. Can you tell us a little bit about that experience and what it was like? Well, you know, for me, it was early on. It was in, uh, before actually widespread testing was available. And, and uh, you, know, um, you know, I didn't require hospitalization, so I was lucky. And uh, I've had a, you know, complete recovery. Um, but I'll say it's had a major effect on our, you know, cancer therapies, you know, just, you know, the pandemic, and we could talk more about that. Well, absolutely, and, and recovering after recovering from the virus, I know that you're joining the fight to find a drug therapy uh, to try to com- combat it. Can you talk a little bit about that progress? Sure, we've been, you know, one of the main issues with COVID is not just it's the number of people who actually require hospitalization and and then advanced care. So um, the asymptomatic or low symptomatic patients who um, you know stay out of the hospital actually then most of them become immune and uh, contribute to herd immunity. So the the problem we face right now, as you know, is is overcrowded hospitals and and lack of beds and intensive care units. So if we could give a medication to people as an outpatient that could keep them from ever getting hospitalized, that could have a huge, uh, relieve a big burden on the medical care system. One, one approach is to prevent the inflammation. So that causes secondary damage in the lung. And, and so tuning down, it's, it's counterintuitive, but tuning down the immune system appears in several models to decrease the need for hospitalization and death. You know the, you know, the RECOVER trial that came out uh, this summer showed a 40% reduction in death using an immunosuppressant, you know, uh, the pill dexamethasone, which is an immunosuppressant, so which is really counterintuitive. Everyone thinks that when you have an infection, you need to jazz up the immune system. And so now it looks like what we need is a balance, not too much, not too little. Well, and, you know, this idea that uh, the immune system can actually be so revved up that that is the thing that can cause death. Uh, I remember reading about the 1918 flu, and this seemed to also be one of the causes of death. Can you explain to our audience a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, that's exactly right, Paige. Um, They've now found, so this is pretty amazing. Uh, They've been able to reconstruct the 1918 virus using molecular biology and sort of paleo 
um, molecular biology techniques. And then they took what we think is a standard flu virus, so this is influenza A, or put in the reconstructed 1918 pandemic virus and into uh, monkeys. And, and uh, those monkeys had a much more severe infection and died compared to monkeys who got the standard flu that, that we face pretty much every year that's not a pandemic. Um, so that virus killed actually more young people than old. You know, the traditional flu virus um, mostly kills older people uh, and, and the frail. This, but the virus back in 1918, you know, was very severe in, in people, you know, in their 20s and 30s. And it turns out, uh, you know, that it was because it, it actually turned on too much immune response. And then that led to damage in the lungs uh, above and beyond what the virus itself caused. So, so this is, is similar to what we're seeing with some of uh, patients who get COVID-19, a subset of them, not everyone, but a subset overreacts, and then this leads to more damage uh, than, than the virus itself causes. And what are some of the, the drugs or treatments then that can be used when you're seeing this effect in patients, in COVID so, patients in particular? Sure, there, there are a number. Um, I mean, first of all, the best thing would be not to get the infection, wear a mask and stay, uh, you know, until we all have vaccines. But there are people, as you know, getting um, infections and damping down the immune system. Um, so one right now standard of care, uh, emergency use authorization by the FDA is dexamethasone, which is cheap and off patent. And um, another now that we're testing is cyclosporin. It's a, uh, this has been used in more than a million uh, transplant patients and people with autoimmune disease such as psoriasis since the 1980s. So it's, it's, it's very inexpensive and, and we are testing that at a trial at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and there's a trial that is just opening at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And in Europe, they have studied this retrospectively in Spain and found that it's very effective. It was the best drug to reduce uh, mortality. And so, you know, while we're talking about this idea, I think it's called the, the cytokine uh, storm. And um, we're so we know that this can happen in COVID patients, but then of course also in patients who have received uh, this immunotherapy. Can you explain a little bit how that works? And these drugs that you're talking about giving to COVID patients, are those drugs that are also being used for uh, cancer patients who have received immunotherapy? So yes, the, um, you know, so this is called cytokine storm. Um, and, and it was first, rec you know, cytokine storm was first recognized with infections. So as I mentioned, 1918 pandemic flu. Back in the Middle Ages, people got um, bubonic plague and that also caused a cytokine storm. Um, and so, so infections and now some of our cancer immunotherapies are known to cause this. Um, and the one that my lab developed, CAR T cells, can cause a very severe form of cytokine storm. It's um, it's actually associated with the leukemia being killed, but that uh, we have patients sometimes who have pounds of tumor and when all that tumor gets killed by the immune system that's basically jacked up, if you would, um, that hyperimmune response that's necessary to kill a lot of tumor can lead to very high fevers. We've seen fevers as high as 106 or 107 degrees Fahrenheit and it's managed now very effectively 
with drugs that damp down the immune system during this time. And there's a number of them being tested. The one that's FDA approved for the treatment of CAR T cell induced cytokine storm is called tocilizumab. And there are a number of other uh, experimental uh, therapies that are being tested as well. I want to talk more about CAR T cell therapy because of course you've done so much work on that, but just to stay on COVID for a few more minutes, um, of course, Pfizer announced earlier this week, a uh, very high rate of effectiveness at seeing in its vaccine more than 90% effective. Um, what do you make of this news given that we haven't actually seen the data yet? Well, you know, I haven't seen the data either. Uh, um, so it will be, given close you know, scrutiny by the FDA and the National Institutes of Health. And um, uh, you know, the, the top line results of 90% efficacy in a randomized trial are stunning, I have to say. Um, you know, the standard flu vaccine that we get, you know, that I get every year and that you probably do, you know, has only, um, if you're above age 65, which I am, uh, it only has a 50% at best efficacy rate. And that's a flu vaccine. So that we, so this vaccine that that the COVID vaccine appears to be very highly um, efficacious. And and from what we've seen, you know, and and there was an article in the New England Journal of Medicine published yesterday on the phase one and phase two trials. It's very safe. So. So it looks to be highly promising. I think the thing that we don't know at this point is, are, are really two things. One is um, durability. How long will it last? You know, the uh, the vaccine that was just reported required two doses, so it takes two months to get fully immune. And and then there are vaccines being tested that only require one dose. But then, so durability is going to be an issue. How long does it last? Do we need reinfection, uh, revaccination every year, for instance, like? Flu. The reason, though, that we need flu vaccines every year is that virus changes. It's called uh, reassortment. So the flu vaccine virus itself changes and it's basically coat, if you will, so that it becomes blinded to the immune system and you need revaccination to the new strain. As far as we know, the COVID, uh, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which causes COVID-19, does not do this. So it's likely that you know, one, a vaccine may be long lasting with COVID and that virus and not require, you know, every year a vaccine like we have to have with flu, but that remains to be tested. Well, and that would certainly be encouraging news. I think one other thing a lot of Americans are wondering about is who's going to get the vaccine first. And we know that the federal government has recommended that frontline health workers should be uh, among the initial population. But what about people who have had cancer, who are, of course, immunocompromised because of that, who may currently have cancer or be in remission? Um, do you think that they should be next in line or where, where should they kind of fall in the lineup of who should be prioritized for getting vaccinated? So, you know, those are principles that are have been done, you know, for instance, routinely during triage, and, you know, so during mass casualties, you know, the ethics have been developed over the years on who to treat first. And, and uh, when you have a limited resource, you know, so in the case of if you have organ transplants and there's a big waiting list for heart and, and liver transplants, they have a worked out ethics of who gets that precious resource. And the same principles apply in, in this case, 
with a vaccine, which is initially going to be limited in dosing and also ability to distribute it. And, and we have worldwide population at risk. So it, it's both needs to be looked at from low and middle income countries to, you know, to ours. Uh, where we have the financial resources, but then there are the logistics. Do we have enough nurses and people who are trained to give the vaccines? And then there are the recipients, which one are, as you just mentioned, you know, people who have compromised immune systems and maybe with a vaccine would be less likely to die. There are people after organ transplants, bone marrow transplants, who are unable to clear the virus right now. That was just reported recently. So they become like typhoid Marys. They can continue to shed the virus if their immune system isn't strong enough to get rid of it. So I, you know, from a public health perspective, vaccinating those people as rapidly as possible to make them non-infectious would be important, but just so that they don't die from comorbidities. So patients with cancer, elderly patients, all the other uh, comorbidities, obesity, obesity, diabetes, et cetera. Those people, I think, you know, will be given, uh, you know, priority first, first uh, available. We've seen an explosion, of course, in telehealth services as people have tried to avoid going to the doctor's office or hospitals if not necessary. Uh, what do you? Th how does that work for cancer patients? And are you worried that there is going to be uh, a spike in deaths uh, because of the inability of people to seek care at times? So you know that's been uh, you know an unavoidable consequence of. Um, uh, people are afraid to go to the hospital, so they're not getting screened, they're not getting their mammograms, they're not getting, you know, testing for symptoms. That, and so I think without a doubt that there will be shown to be retrospectively uh, an excess burden, not of just deaths, you know, during this pandemic from the virus, but from cancer uh, due to uh, screening and then, you know, just delayed treatment. And we've seen that at our own institution where there's been a shift to people being treated with a more advanced cancer than we would traditionally expect. So unfortunately, that's a side effect. I think what we do have net data is now is that PPE works. We have an extraordinarily low level of infection to our health workers in our hospital if they have appropriate training and access to PPE. And similarly, for the people who come in, there's segregation now of people who are infected and who are not because of the availability of testing, which, you know, which we didn't have, unfortunately, early on in the pandemic. So, so it's now safe for people to come to the hospital and they should be screened appropriately and get their care. Uh, and we have now much better telemedicine, as you referred to, uh, capabilities so that some of our cancer care now is done remotely, uh, both administrations of, of uh, chemotherapies, et cetera, blood draws, and uh, so there's much more flexibility than we've had in the past. You know, you've really revolutionized treatment for blood cancer. And we know earlier this year, the FDA authorized or approved a third CAR T cell therapy. Can you explain to us a little bit about how that works? Sure, you know, it's been a dream of mine that we could take the immune system out of the body and then, you know, basically redesign it using gene transfer techniques so that you know, you're, you know, you, you have T cells in your body, which normally they evolved to kill viruses. 
In fact, they're essential for clearing the SARS-CoV-2 virus that causes COVID. So if you don't have T cells, you won't clear that virus. Now, in addition, you can take T cells and give them a new job, if you will, with genetic engineering so that they're also, they become professional cancer killers. And so this has worked very effectively in leukemia, then lymphoma, and there's a number of diseases now, basically the initial, all the blood cancers will be treated with these kinds of um, engineered T cells called CAR T cells. And right now those are made by taking uh, cells from your own arm and then um, they're manufactured at a, you know, at a manufacturing plant and come back a, a few weeks later and given to the patient. Our first patient was treated in 2010 and uh, he came, in August actually of 2010, he came back during the pandemic in August of 2020, you know, here to the University of Pennsylvania. And we found two great things. One is he no longer has leukemia. You know, it looks like we could say he's pretty, that with some confidence now that he's cured. But also we found he still had those CAR T cells and they're still on patrol in him 10 years later after a single infusion. So what that shows is, is that these cells are long-lived, they can last a decade and stay on patrol and prevent recurrent cancer. How do you see uh, immunotherapies fitting into the future of cancer treatment? And is there, I mean, is, is there reason to believe that it may ever be kind of on par with the amount, you know, of people that receive chemotherapy or radiation? Well, I, th I think so. So um, that's, that's clearly the $64,000 question. Um, I think it will happen. The question is really how long it will take. You know, Nobel Prize was given out in 2018 for the um, invention and, and discovery of so-called checkpoint antibody therapies. And those treat about 20% of all patients with what was previously uncurable cancer from, you know, melanoma, the worst of the skin cancers now to lung cancer. Um, and, um, and now CAR T cells, which, in, you know, we call them a form of synthetic biology because rather than and just jacking up the natural immune system, the checkpoint therapies do, with synthetic biology, gene engineering, we can actually make the immune system, if you will, into basically an Olympic immune system to do things that never was capable of doing, uh, you know, as you were born with. So um, both of these together, I think, will lead to the treatment of and cure of more and more cancers. And, and the big issue now for CAR T cells is making them work in uh, solid cancers, you know, the common um, so-called um, uh, epithelial cancers that, that the most cancers people die of are in the GI tract, colon cancer uh, uh, and pancreatic cancer and so on that are really very hard to treat unless they're found early. Well, and all of this seems so promising, but what would you say is the next big barrier to, uh, you know, expanding this treatment for people? Well, right now, um, you know, the, the most common blood cancer is uh, myeloma. Uh, there's about 30,000 advanced cases a year uh, diagnosed in the U.S., and it's generally incurable. Um, and uh, it's really an awful disease if you've ever seen anyone suffer with it. And it looks like two or three companies will now. That will probably be the next big forefront where they will get FDA approval to treat myeloma. 
Um, and so what that brings out now is we need the infrastructure. You know, whenever you have a brand new technology, this happened, you know, with, uh, you know, the IT computers and so on. Initially, you have something that's really good, but it can't go out to the masses because it takes a while to scale that. We're seeing that very much. You know, I make car T-cells, but the car automobile industry is having exactly that issue with electronic, you know, uh, electric battery powered cars. They're much better for the environment. They're cheaper and maintenance and, and all have many kinds of advances, but they need, it's taking time to make enough of them to get the demand. And it's similar to that with these car T-cells because there's an entirely new manufacturing process that's much more complex. The cells are made from your own arm. And then unlike, you know, this standard drugs we get where one of them can, can works for everyone. It's the same drug for everyone. These are your own personalized cell therapy. So it's a much more complex logistic, but the advantage is, is it's curative in most cases. And, um, you know, it's a one-time therapy. You don't have to keep getting it over and over like many kinds of chemotherapy. So, so the patients prefer it, but it's not ready yet for prime time for everyone. It's going to take time, like all new technologies. Well, unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things there. Dr. Carl June, thank you so much for joining us for this fascinating conversation. Thanks very much, Paige. It's really been a pleasure. We have much more of our program coming up. We'll be back with Wajahat Al- uh, Ali and Dr. Sarah Qureshi in just a few minutes. Please stay with us. Welcome back. If you're just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, a health policy reporter here at the Washington Post. And my next guests are Wajahuth Ali and Dr. Sarah Qureshi. Waj is a journalist, author, and TV news commentator. Sarah is a family medicine practitioner and assistant professor of family medicine at Georgetown. And together, they're parents of three children, including five-year-old Nuseba Ali, who underwent a liver transplant last year and is a cancer survivor. I'm honored to welcome you both to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Paige. Thank you for having us. Waj, I want to start with you. I know that you spoke with my colleague Libby Casey uh, about a year and a half ago, and this was just a few months after uh, Nuseba was diagnosed with stage four cancer. We know a lot has happened since then. Would you update us? Yeah, so Nuseba had stage four cancer uh, when she was two years old, right before her third birthday, and we were looking desperately for a liver donor that entire summer. And thanks to Sean Zahir, who was an anonymous donor at the time, she had a full liver transplant uh, because the cancer was all over her liver, so we couldn't just simply do a surgery. Um, she went to do two post-transplant chemos, uh, and last January, uh, she rang the bell. And ringing the bell, for those of you who know, anyone who's endured cancer means she was officially cancer-free. Fast forward, we literally two days ago, got the results of her liver biopsy because you have to do multiple tests to make sure the cancer hasn't come back. All the blood tests came back negative. The liver biopsy came back negative. So knock on wood, uh, fast forward a year later, um, she is cancer free, doing well. Her hair is coming out. Uh, she's watching TV right now with her, uh, her brother. And apparently she got another toy in the mail from her grandparents. Uh, and we have bribed them that we will open the toys if they just stay quiet for the next 25 minutes. 
Well, as a parent of three kids myself, I will totally understand if if small children appear in your background. Uh, we know that more than you had said more than 500 people applied, most of whom were strangers, applied to be liver donors for your daughter, and that seems particularly amazing because more than 100,000 people in the U.S. are on the wait list for uh, organ transplants. Uh, were you surprised by the volume of applications? Yeah, we were very surprised. Not only was I surprised, Dr. Fishbein, uh, who was uh, her, her lead uh, doctor at Georgetown, who did the transplant, said that it was one of the it was the first time they had noticed that supply uh, outmatched demand. And as a result of seeing that how so many people stepped up for one girl, they have invested in trying to create a center in the name of Nuseba, a center for uh, living donors. And uh, they just started it and they're seeking to uh, basically get some money, any donors out there who are interested in donating to a good cause, because they realize that if you actually give the resources and the services and, and do exactly what we're doing right now, just to raise awareness, uh, uh, that people step up. Because most people, just like myself, I'm not a doctor, I had no idea the liver grows back. I had no idea. And so Sean Zahir, who is the anonymous liver donor, he's doing perfectly fine. He's now a family friend. The liver grows back and his small piece of liver is now growing inside of Nuseba as her liver. So I had the privilege, we had the privilege that I write for the New York Times. I used to be on CNN at the time. And after, by sharing the story of Nuseba and by informing people what happens in stage four cancer and by telling people, hey, did you know that you can give a piece of your liver and save a girl's life and your liver grows back? People didn't know. And 500 people, overwhelmingly people we've never met, we found out from the, the from Georgetown, they actually stepped up and there were multiple battery of tests. And at the last second, thankfully, Sean Zahir's liver was the Wagyu grade A liver. But one of the beautiful, I think, positive stories about this is not only did Nuseba get saved, but we found out that some of those anonymous donors who stepped up, they got matched with other people. And so I've been receiving messages in the past three months saying, hey, I signed up, but guess what? My kidney was great and I just gave a, a kidney. Or guess what? A piece of my liver was great and I matched up with another girl. So other lives have been saved as well. And they're trying to invest in this and expand the Center for Living Donors because it was the first time that demand outstripped, uh, uh, supply outstripped demand. And, and it's amazing. So Sarah, I want to ask you, so I know as a mom, of course, going through this must have been incredibly difficult, but you're also a doctor. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? So on one hand, of course, you're you're a mom, but then you also have a deeper medical expertise than most moms do. Do you think that made it easier or harder as you went through the process of treatment? I think it can go either way for any individual, depending on probably their personality. Um, for me and for our family, I think it made it easier um, for me to be able to advocate for Nuseba in, in a way where I understood um, a lot of the medical jargon and, and what the physicians were talking about and be able to make sure I was on top of every little thing. Um, I think it really helped. It helped me ask um, some of the tougher questions and um, and just really, really follow everything closely and make sure that Nuseba, I mean, her, her doctors at, from Children's National Medical Center to MedStar Georgetown have been incredible. I mean, I, you know, hearing Dr. June talk about the research, I just want to put a plug in for, for research because Nuseba wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for all the research that was done 
for chemotherapies, the appropriate chemotherapies to treat the type of stage four hepatoblastoma that she had. And if this was five to 10 years ago, she wouldn't have been living because the chemotherapy likely wouldn't have been effective and um, living donor research, you know, it wouldn't have been there in terms of a living transplant. So we have um, so much to thank in terms of the physicians, the researchers who have done all this work um, to help it be possible for Nuseiba to have been treated in such an amazing way. So as a physician, it was, um, I think it helped and it, I feel like it's helped me be a better physician also to be on the other side and to, I think I teach medical students also and we teach a lot about navigating the healthcare system and I think it's a whole different experience when you're actually having to do that yourself. Um, so I hope that this has um, helped me be a better physician to my patients and, and understanding the system and the complications. Paige, I, I can say I'm a lowly English major, uh, a failure to my South Asian ancestors. So to have a doctor in the family and also a superstar, a rock star mom. I mean, I, I sit there and I think about it. I'm like, for those poor parents who don't have a doctor in the family, just to just to navigate all this, with not just the emotional pressure uh, of trying to save your daughter who has a stage four cancer, but also just trying to understand and keep up with everything. And so we were so lucky. I was so lucky as a parent that Sarah was there always uh, as a resource for me. Even now, with the medications uh, and looking at the test results, like you just have a second set of eyes at home to make sure that everything is going well. And so I always just think about those poor Americans who don't have health insurance, our fellow Americans, especially during coronavirus, where over 240,000 Americans have died. I just want people to sit with that number, 240,000 Americans. That's profound. Um, and those parents who don't have the resources, we, we were profoundly lucky every step of the way. What do you think is Nuseba's understanding of what she went through? I know she's five years old, and as a parent, it's so difficult to explain complex things to kids. So what is what is her own understanding at this point? Four years old. She's four, four years, years old. old. I'm sorry. Yeah, no, we, so Sarah, uh, it, <laughs> she made the parenting choice that she's going to, as a doctor, uh, she's going to tell him everything. So at the age of two, Nuseba and Ibrahim so yeah, knew all the private parts, the actual names of the private parts, which has put us in some hilarious situations in public. Uh, but uh, we told them everything. So they're very sharp. And our experience is that Ibrahim and Nuseba knew. I'm, I remember one time Nuseba said to Sarah, uh, and right after she was diagnosed, she goes, oh, cancer. Didn't that one person that we know got cancer and died? And then my son, who I used to drop off at school, who uh, is two years older than her, he was telling his friends, yeah, my sister Nuseba, she has the cancer in the belly and they're gonna have to get rid of the liver, but then it'll be okay. And so Nuseba and Ibrahim, sensitive, smart, they knew everything. Uh, she knew the names of her medications. She knew the names of her procedures. She knew exactly what was happening. Mm -hmm. and, and Sarah being the doctor was able to really, I think do a wonderful job of informing her about everything that was happening every step of the way. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna echo what Waj said. I think, again, it depends on your child's personality. Right. Um, but for the most part, I think it's really important for to inform children, to inform any patients, but especially children about what's going on and for them to have some sense of control because they're going in the hospital, they're having a port place, they're constantly being accessed through needles, they're, they're, they're having all these procedures done, getting all these meds. And so for them to at least have some understanding, even if they're really young, to talk to them about it, I think is really important, assess their understanding. And I'm, I also have to give a shout out right now to the child life specialist mm -hmm. at both Children's in Georgetown. I Nuseba just went for her one year post-transplant liver biopsy and she was getting the IV placed. And even though she's such a pro and she's used to getting stuck, they developed um, with hope for 
Hope for Henry nonprofit, they developed this chart where she like puts stickers and goes through every step. Um, I think that those those organizations are huge and, and a lot of the other uh, children's cancer organizations and helping children just feel comfortable, feel in con at least some control of what's going on. And um, I think for Nuseba, that's worked out well in translating that to that pandemic that happened. I, we, we've been really fortunate in terms of the fact that her she rang the bell January 2020, cancer-free, no more chemo, had some tests in February, and then March, the pandemic hit. So um, she hasn't had to get chemotherapy at all during this year. And we have friends who have kids with cancer who had to go in and out of the hospital during this challenging time. Um, but I will say for her and Ibrahim, they understand the pandemic in terms of wearing a mask. They wear a mask. They remind us about, you know, making sure we don't forget masks. They understand the virus, the pandemic. We've talked to them about it. So I just think when you talk to kids and explain things, it's it's the best thing you can do for them. It, it also normalizes it, Paige, for for the kids, right? And and so Nuseba, I mean, thank God so far we have not seen her in any way, shape, or form be self-conscious about the surgery, about the scar, uh, with you know hair loss, you know, and that's also parented like, oh, you're, you're affirming language, educate them about the process, normalize it, show them other kids who are going through it, and that really helps them feel grounded and centered. And so we've been very lucky that uh, at least what we've seen, Nuseba and Ibrahim have just kind of, kids are resilient. They've just kind of moseyed along uh, because we have tried our best to make them feel that this is normal, you're informed, you have some autonomy, uh, do you understand what's happening? And you just give them love at the end of the day, you just give them as much love and comfort uh, and attention as possible. Well, and we know uh, talking about the pandemic, it's a especially a huge concern for families with immunocompromised members. Uh, are you more concerned about Nuseba getting COVID than say your other children? And how does your level of concern say compared to your friends who don't have immunocompromised children? You want to take yeah. it first? I'll, I'll start. Um, we we also have a, 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 young, a baby who just turned one year old. So when the pandemic hit, she was only about six months old. So we had a newborn. Um, whose uh, uh, immune system obviously is still developing. So we were worried about the newborn and definitely worried about Nuseba because of her um, trans, she's post-transplant, so she's on lifelong immunosuppressants. And um, her immune system is suppressed because of the immunosuppressants so that her liver does not get rejected. Um, the new liver does not get rejected from her body. So we have been extra cautious. Um, I, I'd like to believe we would be anyways in terms of protecting other kids like Naseba, even the, even if our kids weren't. But yeah, we've definitely noticed differences in um, family friends or, or other friends, colleagues who um, have not been as stringent. But we, we've had our own bubble from the start of the pandemic and been really cautious. My, my job has been amazing in terms of letting me do telehealth from home or precept residents from home so that I'm not getting exposed myself to bring something home to Naseba because she worked so hard to live, you know, last year. It, it, it's been really scary for us, honestly, every day, just thinking, oh my gosh, if she were to get it, she is um, on the list who would be at risk of more severe illness from COVID um, because of her her status. So yeah, I we've, we've been I, extra cautious. I, I've been very blunt. Uh, I've yeah. been telling people, for the love of God, please wear a mask and social distance and survive. And and having an immunocompromised kid, I think Sarah, Sarah, remember like January, so Sarah's also, the fact that she's a doctor, she called it. She goes, coronavirus is coming. This is going to be a huge pandemic. People are not taking this seriously. This country's not taking it seriously. The leadership's not taking it seriously. In late January, she said, she goes, everything's going to be shut down. Just watch. And I think that heightened awareness for us was as a result of the fact that Nuseba literally at that time had just rang the bell. And so we were trying to tell people, save yourself 
But also think about this this child who uh, is you know three years old at that time, who literally fought like a warrior for a year. And think about all these other kids, our elders who are immunocompromised, uh, those who come predominantly from black and brown communities. As more and more you guys are going to learn about this, just this is a pandemic and no one's going to be immune to it. And at that time, there were also some cases of young, healthy adults, some of our friends, uh, people who are public, uh, you know, even New York Times editor Mara Gay, who was a runner in her 30s, wrote about it. So we have tried our best to not only protect our family, but also educate people that when you don't wear a mask and you're being cavalier and you don't take it seriously, you are actually endangering Nuseba and you are endangering your elders. And so even now, slowly but surely, we've seen that some people are hesitant, resistant, there's disinformation, there's stubbornness. Yeah. But uh, I, I try to shamelessly use the example of my daughter. I'm like, this girl lived for like, you know, through cancer. Are you telling me that you can't wear a mask to protect her? Come on. And so for those of you who don't wear masks, please wear masks. I'm not the doctor, Sarah. They listen to you. I'm an English major. Echoing Waj's message. Absolutely. I mean, we besides Nuseiba, like I said, we have so many vulnerable communities and, and Waj brought up black and brown communities. And that's not because of anything genetic. That's because of racism and other socioeconomic factors that makes those communities um, more susceptible to COVID and higher mortality rates of COVID by far. So um, for all of our vulnerable patients, our vulnerable communities, Please, I mean, the, we have, we're researching vaccines, we're researching medications, that's great. And I love the work that Dr. Jun is doing, but we wanna also put a plug in and say, we know that, and he said this already, we know that masks work. We know that PPE works um, in terms of like hospital providers. We know that social distancing works. So we should practice what works and, and hopefully moving forward with our new administration, um, we, will have that model for our country and we will move in a more positive direction. But but please think about all of these patients. And I'll just say as a family medicine physician, it's not about just mortality rates. It's also about people who get coronavirus and are living with um, long-term effects of it in terms of chronic cough, in terms of chronic fatigue, body aches. I see it all the time. So I think we talk about mortality rates, but we're not talking about really how people are unable to work for some people who are really affected by this. So, um, and these were people who did not have health conditions before. So um, it's, it's really for the betterment of everybody. Uh, Sarah, I want to, you mentioned a vaccine, and of course we got really big news this week about Pfizer's vaccine, but as a family doctor, how do you think about that? Do you have any safety concerns? And if we do see uh, the FDA give emergency use authorization, would you want to give this to your patients? Would you want to give this to your kids? Yeah, so I mean, I'm not an, a vaccine expert, but as a family medicine physician and based off what I've read, um, the, the efficacy so far has shown really good, at least with the first trial with Pfizer and the safety profiles seemed really good. So the, the only issue is they tested it mainly on adults. They did not test it on breastfeeding um, mothers or uh, uh, pregnant women or children. Mm -hmm. So um, the, if, it is, if it is approved, I don't think it'll be approved for kids. Um, but I would, I will absolutely advocate for anybody it's approved for um, to, to go ahead and get the vaccine, you know, including ourselves. Um, so you I, first. <laughs> I, I understand the safety concerns, but based on the other side of what I've seen in terms of coronavirus and how it can devastate the body. And right now we don't even know the long-term consequences mm. of how it can affect different organs in different parts of the body. Um, so I think, again, I know that the vaccine uh, trials have pushed through more quickly than any other vaccines in the history of our time, but um, I, it appears to have been done in a safe way. And so I would I, I would be the first to actually take the vaccine. I, I would probably stop breastfeeding. So. 
uh, Waj, you wrote about this, I believe, uh, uh, earlier this year. But can you talk a little bit about how this experience of going through cancer with your daughter prepared you perhaps mentally and emotionally for now this huge challenge we find ourselves in with the pandemic? Yeah, uh, I mean, we have kind of dark humor because you need dark humor when you're enduring cancer. Uh, you need to have find joy, you need to find release, and you need to find a perspective. Because one of the things that happens when you're enduring a tragedy, uh, such as coronavirus, uh, or when you find out that your innocent two-year-old daughter has stage four cancer all over her liver, is you can go to a very dark mental place very quickly. You can go into a mental quicksand where you ask, why us? Why me? You can ask God or the universe. And we were very lucky, uh, I think Sarah and I being on the same page, that we curbed that very quickly. We said, you know, we said like, this happened, this happens to people, this is happening to us right now. Uh, we just have to endure it now, that's it. Uh, and I say that because if you can mentally keep yourself away from that quicksand, you give yourself a type of resilience and outlook uh, to endure what is a, a challenging, brutal, uh, uncompromising, unpredictable journey, right? And I feel like that's what's happening with coronavirus, uh, with 240,000 people dead, with millions now, 10 million cases, is many people are saying, this is not fair. Why is this happening to me? Why did I lose my job? Why did I lose my health insurance? Why did my healthy uh, family member get sick and get killed? And and what, what happens with cancer, Sarah could talk about it, is it plays for all the marbles. It's It uh, doesn't care about your routine, doesn't care about your Netflix queue, doesn't care about your vacation plans. And so it mentally just surviving and enduring Nuseba's cancer uh, prepared us in a way, mentally and spiritually and emotionally for coronavirus. Because right when Nuseba rang the bell a week later, coronavirus. And so our kids were dealing with basically lockdown for you know six months before. They know everything about hand sanitizing. They had multiple trips to the hospital. Now all we were asked to do is, hey, just live the way you were living with that uncertainty and and you know keep uh, your immunocompromised daughter safe, but now you don't, at least don't have to go to the hospital every other day, right? So in a strange way, we were kind of prepared for the onslaught that we had to endure. And I always tell people, um, there's a beautiful saying in Islam, is tie, uh, tie your camel first, then put your trust in God, which means you do everything in your power that you can, uh, but then you have to let it go. And I think when you're dealing with a daughter with cancer, or if you're living in a once in a lifetime pandemic, there's only so much we can do. But there are things we can do. Wear a mask, social distance, educate yourself. But then after that, you have to let it go. And you also, final thing I'll say is you have to be easy on yourself. Um, give up the routine, find a new normal. With cancer, we're finding new normals every day because our routine was disrupted. So be a bit easy on yourself, uh, be gentle on yourself, forgive yourself, and know that this too, inshallah, one day, God willing, will end. Uh, and you want to get through it with mentally, physically, spiritually, uh, your soul and your mind intact and with your family members alive and well. And if you do that and you unburden yourself, and the final thing I'll say is don't, don't be afraid to unburden your pain. We live in a community. People are experiencing this pandemic together. So it's okay to share your pain and your sorrow. Other people are going through it. And I found out that once you share that pain, uh, it, it, it's healing. And, and you know, we, we met and talked to other cancer survivors, people who are going through it, parents. And now, as a result of being on the opposite end of it, we are in a small way, I think, lucky to provide solace to those parents who are, are, whose children are enduring cancer as we, as we speak right now. And if I well, unfortunately, 
Unfortunately, we're out of time, so we'll have to leave things right there. Uh, Waj Ali and Sarah Qureshi, thank you so much for joining us today. It was a great conversation. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.